You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. During his lifetime, John Mitchell was known for a lot of things. As a botanist, he described and classified flowers and grasses, and his name became a suffix for a bunch of New World plants. Acnidae Mitch, a subspecies of purple amaranth. Elemis Mitch, a subspecies of wild rice. Aphalon Mitch, or one-flowered broom rape. In 1744, he published an essay upon the causes of the different colors of people in different climates, which was, well, actually fairly progressive for its time. The clause for its time is doing a lot of heavy lifting there, obviously. At the time in question, there were two dominant figures in racial theory. One was Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon, who, among much else, made one of the earliest attempts to date the age of the Earth, if quite inaccurately, which we talked about just a couple episodes back in It's a Date. Buffon argued that all peoples of the world descended from Adam and Eve, and further argued that Adam and Eve were white. Hey, just like in all those paintings white people made. In fact, Buffon suggested all people everywhere started out white, or at least contained the capacity for whiteness, if they could be protected from the process of ratiation, which was mainly the result of diet and exposure to wind and sun. Mitchell's idea differed in a couple of key respects. For starters, and most radically for the time and place, he didn't think that all people started out white, or even that people started out white at all. The first humans, he theorized, had brown or reddish skin, like the color, quote, found among Asiatics and native Amerindians. All other races, including white people, descended from them. Perhaps equally important to the readers of his day, Mitchell didn't think skin color was skin color. He thought skin was transparent, and that complexion was a result of the thickness of scales, or lamellae, underneath the epidermis. But he generally agreed with Buffon that it was environment, mainly sun and wind, that accounted for the geographical varieties of skin thickness, which then by happenstance created the appearance of different skin colors. Mitchell's theory is, I must say, pretty impressively argued, if you can ignore the experiments he describes of blistering black skin to prove its density. It, it doesn't seem like he actually performed these experiments for what that's worth. And he doesn't pull a single punch in his efforts to dispel the other prevailing explanation for skin color. 
that there were four races of human being because there were four humors, and each race was dominated by one of them. Europeans were the sanguine race, Native Americans the choleric, Asians melancholic, and Africans phlegmatic. These humors not only explained skin color, but also a host of stereotypical traits and behaviors that I see no reason to get into here because you know what racism is, right? Yeah, it's pretty much that. Between his discoveries in botany and his theory on skin color, John Mitchell earned a place as a fellow at the Royal Academy in 1748. But unfortunately for Mitchell, all of those accomplishments were about to be undone, mainly by one guy, the other most dominant figure in racial theory of the day, Carl Linnaeus. We've talked a little about Linnaeus before, and we're going to talk about him a lot in the not-too-distant future, but what we need to know here is that he was, without competition, the most influential and esteemed biologist, not only of his time, but maybe of time. <laughs> All times. Today, he's best remembered for formalizing binomial nomenclature, the taxonomical system by which we order living things, Homo sapien, Canis lupus, etc., he also argued vehemently for the very humoral theory of race that Mitchell opposed, and unfortunately won that battle. Then, to add insult to injury, it turned out that most of the flowers Mitchell had identified had been identified previously by Linnaeus. Linnaeus was erasing Mitchell's legacy at a breakneck pace. He had his fellowship at the Royal Society, but there wasn't much to do with it. He'd returned to London to care for his sick wife, but she died soon after they arrived, and John Mitchell spent a few years traveling the countryside, relying on the kindness of friends and the occasional small publication to keep afloat. In something like the nick of time, along came the Earl of Halifax with a job. Mitchell was a Virginian, so could he put together a map of North America that would impress upon the British people the threat France posed to the English colonies there? The Mitchell map wasn't just a lifeline for a flailing, unmoneyed gentleman, and it wasn't just his claim to fame after his other accomplishments were more or less wiped out by Carl Linnaeus. It was also the most detailed, thorough, and trustworthy map of North America ever made, and remained the primary map for decades to come. This, as we mentioned last episode, if you haven't listened to last episode, you should probably go back and listen to that before getting here. Map and Territory is the title. This, as we mentioned, created some problems. There was the issue around Lake of the Woods and the Mississippi River, which we detailed at the end of that last episode. There was the Isle Felipeau, a large island in the middle of Lake Superior, which didn't actually exist, but nonetheless was meant to be part of the border between the United States and Canada. There were similar border problems arising from errors in the Mitchell map in Maine, Vermont, and even down to Spanish Florida. But the real treasure, the reason we're back talking about John Mitchell and his map for a second episode, is the air that led directly to a war between two U.S. states all over a small town on the western shores of Lake Erie. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Holy Toledo. The seeds of the trouble began when the fledgling United States was still a unicameral confederacy. <laughs> they grow up so fast. 
When the War of Independence had ended in 1783, Great Britain had agreed in the Treaty of Paris to give over to their rebellious little teenager of an offspring the lands stretching west to the Mississippi. That left Congress with the task of figuring out how to administer all that new territory, which, as with most things, they were very bad at. Thomas Jefferson took the first step, writing up the Land Ordinance of 1784, which stated that the land between the Appalachians and the Mississippi should be divided into ten states, which Jefferson suggested should be called, deep breath, Asanisipia, Chironisis, Illinois, Metropotamia, Michigania, Pilisipia, Polypotamia, Saratoga, Sylvania, and Washington. He also suggested that no states west of the original 13 colonies should be permitted to continue the practice of slavery in any form after the year 1800, but that provision got voted down. The voice of a single individual would have prevented this abominable crime. Heaven will not always be silent. The friends to the rights of human nature will in the end prevail, Jefferson said balefully. And if you're thinking... Jefferson seems like kind of a hypocrite, considering that he himself was a slave owner and rapist. You don't know the half of it. That provision for ending slavery in 1800 that he wrote and later sadly shook his head about not getting support for, he himself voted against it. He was the single voice that would have prevented said abominable crime. Anyway. Like a lot of early laws passed by the Congress of the Confederation, Jefferson's 1784 land ordinance was light on details. He suggested the specific names of each of the ten new states proposed, but what apparently didn't matter was where they were and what their borders would be. It didn't say anything about how these states would become states either, or how they would be governed until that time. Additionally, Metropotamia? Metropotamia? No, I'm sorry, Thomas. There's just no way we're naming it that. The biggest oversight, so far as the new U.S. government was concerned, was that the 1784 ordinance had nothing to say about how settlers could purchase the new land from the government. The weak federal government of the time didn't have the power of direct taxation, and that left land titles one of their only dependable sources of revenue. So, the next year, a sequel was drafted. The Land Ordinance of 1780, get this, 5. This new and improved ordinance called for a survey to be made of all the new land, which would be divided into six-square-mile townships that the government could then sell parts of to settlers. Additionally, each township would have one section laid aside for a public schoolhouse towards the center. However, it still said absolutely nothing about the new states they were supposedly going to be making. That would have to wait for the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. I feel like if I say the word ordinance one more time, I am going to turn this show off myself. But this is the important one, so let's all just try to bear with it. The Northwest Ordinance said that the territory above the Ohio River and west to the Mississippi should be carved into between three and five states, rather than the ten Jefferson had suggested, which the 13 colonies feared would quickly dilute their political power. Eventually, these three to five states would become Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Wait up. One, two, three, four, five, six? Ah, man, well. 
Once a territory had 5,000 people, it's 1787 in the United States, so keep in mind that people means adult white landowning men, it could elect a governor and legislature. And once it reached 60,000, it could apply for statehood. Before either of those thresholds were met, a governor and judges would be appointed by the federal government. That will all be somewhat important going forward, but don't worry, I'll remind you when it becomes necessary. The thing that's critical for us right now is Article 5, which established the borders of these new states to be. The key part is what the North-South boundary would be between what would eventually become the states of Ohio and Michigan, which the ordinance describes as north of an east-west line drawn through the southerly bend or extreme of Lake Michigan. Got that? The southern border of Michigan was to be an imaginary line stretching straight west from the southern tip of Lake Michigan to where that line hit Lake Erie. Above that line, Michigan. Below that line, Ohio. Or Indiana to the west of Ohio. But as in most things, it's better if we just ignore Indiana. Simple enough, right? Well, here's the catch. Once again, the map referenced in the Northwest Territory Ordinance, there's that friggin' word again, was the Mitchell map. And among the many, many small errors in the Mitchell map is the one that brings us here today. It showed the southern tip of Lake Michigan as being about 25 miles farther north than it is in reality. This is the hypothetical map territory problem at its most literal. What was the actual border between Michigan and Ohio meant to be? Should it be drawn according to where Lake Michigan actually was, or where the map that Congress referenced showed it to be? Got it? That's the dispute, or the kernel of the dispute, that's going to take us to war a bit down the road. But for a good long while, nobody noticed that there was anything to worry about. In 1802, the eastern portion of the Northwest Territory reached the 60,000 population threshold and began the process of becoming the state of Ohio. They held a state constitutional convention where the general belief of those assembled was that Congress had intended for the border to be in line with the Mitchell map, which should have just about intercepted the mouth of the Maumee River. But they had received reports from a French fur trader that Lake Michigan might extend farther south than anticipated. So far south that if the line were drawn from it, Ohio could stand to lose all access to the west side of Lake Erie, and maybe even the North Shore, too, leaving the new state landlocked. To be safe, they marked their border in the state constitution as a line extending from the tip of Lake Michigan to the most northerly cape of the Miami Bay, which we now call the Maumee Bay. That would make Ohio's northern border a slightly diagonal line, angled up towards the river mouth in order to preserve the state's shoreline access. The new state constitution was sent to Congress for ratification in 1803, where it was taken up by committee to double-check all its what's and wherefores. That committee concluded that the northern boundary wasn't up to snuff, since it depended on, quote, a fact not yet ascertained, i.e. the southern tip of Lake Michigan. So, still not great on details, Congress admitted Ohio into the Union without specifying its northern border. In the meantime, the area that we now call Michigan was having growing pains of its own. It was officially part of Indiana Territory, 
which included not just all of the Northwest Territory besides Ohio, but also the newly purchased Louisiana Territory, which stretched across most of the center of the continent. All of that land, an area larger than all of the original U.S. states put together, including Ohio, was under the control of one governor, William Henry Harrison, who eventually became president of the United States for a grand total of 30 days before he died from a combination of typhoid and bad 19th century medical intervention. That's neither here nor there. The point is, it was too much land to possibly govern, and the settlers of Wayne County told Congress that they had 5,000 people, you know what they meant, and wanted to be named an independent territory. Congress assented, and on January 11, 1805, they voted for the creation of the Michigan Territory, which was defined as, quote, all that part of the Indiana Territory, which lies north of a line drawn east from the southerly bend or extreme of Lake Michigan until it shall intersect Lake Erie. I know this is a bit confusing, so let's break it down. In 1803, Congress ratified the state constitution of Ohio, which called for its northern border to run from the southern tip of Lake Michigan northeast to the Maumee River Bay on Lake Erie. Congress didn't actually give that border over, but that is what Ohio's constitution said. And then, in 1805, they approved the creation of the Michigan Territory, whose southern border was to be drawn from that same tip of Lake Michigan, but straight east from there until it hit Lake Erie. Congress almost certainly had no idea what they'd done, but they'd created a strip of land between five and eight miles high, stretching across the border, which effectively belonged to both Ohio and Michigan. This still wasn't a big deal, though, even as people began to realize that there was a contradiction at play. For the most part, the land in question and at question was worthless swamp, and nobody much lived there. But that was about to change, and the course of war would be set. In 1808, construction began on the Erie Canal, which would link the lake up to New England and the Atlantic Ocean when it was completed. That would make the westernmost shore of the lake extremely valuable, and the town poised on its edge the gateway to the west, which will be called Toledo in a little while, but not yet. But the United States Congress had passed contradicting laws as to which state it belonged to. The 1803 order to admit Ohio as the 17th state tacitly endorsed their constitution, which drew the northern boundary on a slant landing above Toledo, whereas the 1805 Act establishing Michigan as a territory made that border a straight line east from the bottom of Lake Michigan. The match really began falling towards the dry grass on January 23, 1812. That was the day that Amos Stafford, the tax collector for the Toledo area, wrote Ohio Governor Jonathan Miggs to ask which state he lived in slash worked for. Miggs knew the answer he wanted to give, but not the answer that would be backed up by the federal government. Ohio had been passing resolutions every year since statehood asking Congress to officially determine a border, but Congress hadn't taken them up. In the meantime, residents of Michigan Territory had been setting up towns and counties galore along the area which we will be calling the Toledo Strip. Now that a tax collector was involved, Congress got moving. On May 20th, 1812, they officially appropriated a surveying team to go to the area and determine the border once and for all. Ten days later, President James Madison sent a message to Congress asking for a declaration of war against Great Britain. 
The War of 1812, which is going to come up a bunch here, formally began on the 18th of June, and the survey of the Toledo Strip was put on the back burner before it could get going. By 1816, Indiana was being admitted as the 19th U.S. state, and the survey of the Strip still hadn't been completed. The Surveyor General of the Northwest Territory was Edward Tiffin, and he decided to take matters into his own hands, charging a subordinate named William Harris to go out and get the boundary settled. Harris soon returned with his results, which fixed the border exactly as it was described in the Ohio State Constitution, running from a cedar post at the southern tip of Lake Michigan to a willow tree north of Maumee Bay. The Harris Line put the entirety of the Toledo Strip in Ohio hands. But of course it did, because before Edward Tiffin was Surveyor General, he'd been Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives, and before that, the junior Senator from Ohio, and before that, he had been Ohio's first state governor. He had instructed Harris to go and mark a line that favored Ohio's claim, and Harris had done exactly that. When he heard about the survey, Lucas Cass, the appointed governor for Michigan Territory, responded, Are you fucking kidding me? Okay, that's not a verbatim quote, but it's not terribly far off either. Cass knew what the fix was and immediately challenged Tiffin's authority and result. He told Tiffin that his survey was only adding strength to the strong and making the weak still weaker. Along with the three judges picked to look over Michigan, he sent an appeal directly to President Monroe asking for a legitimate survey done in accordance to the standards set by Congress. Six months later, the Treasury Department sent John Fulton to do just that. Fulton was a schoolteacher in Chillicothe, Ohio, but trained as a civil engineer and surveyor. He was also interested in astronomy and owned the first reflecting telescope ever manufactured in North America. He set off in June of 1818 to draw the line as prescribed in the Northwest Ordinance. He started at the same cedar post Harris had found at the southern tip of Lake Michigan. But from there, he traveled straight east instead of angling up towards Maumee Bay. Naturally, Governor Cass thought that to be quite fair. Between the Harris line and the Fulton line lay 468 square miles of no man's land. Or every man's land? Disputed territory, let's just call it. Both surveys were sent to the Treasury Department on the same day, March 7th, 1820, so there could be no question that the federal government now understood that there was a problem. Upon learning of the dispute, President Monroe and the Congress did nothing still, and then they continued doing nothing for another eight years. In that time, the conflict just kept simmering, hotter and hotter. It's in this span that Toledo officially became Toledo. And during this time that construction on another canal began, leading from Lake Erie at Toledo to the Ohio River at Cincinnati, making the issue of ownership all the more pressing. Even more important than that, in 1833, Michigan announced that they now had 60,000 white male landowning people and were applying for statehood. Ohio fought the application tooth and nail, The delegation from Ohio told Congress that they should deny Michigan statehood since Michigan refused to recognize the proper border. 
This was a squirmy kind of argument, considering that by most measures, Michigan's Fulton line was a far more legitimate claim than Ohio's. In fact, in anticipation of Michigan's vie for statehood, Congress had commissioned yet another survey of the line a year earlier, this one led by a captain of the U.S. Army Engineers and backed up by two lieutenants, one of whom was none other than that piece-of-shit Robert E. Lee. And that third, congressionally approved line fell exactly along Fulton's, giving further ammo to Michigan's claim. But Ohio was a state, and Michigan wasn't. And that gave the Buckeyes a lot more power than the we need a better word for Michigander. Pasty eaters? Mitten livers? Opesayers? It'll come to me. Ohio didn't just have the clout of statehood on its side. It was also a critical swing voting state for the presidency. And even worse for the poor... Michiganians? That's much worse. Even worse for Michigan territory is that Indiana and Illinois, who had both become states in the meantime, were concerned that if Michigan got to move their border south to the tip of Lake Michigan then they would both have to, too. And so Indiana and Illinois joined with Ohio and blocked Michigan's petition for statehood. Michigan's counter-strategy was to try to butter up President Andrew Jackson by naming a bunch of new southern counties along and above the contested territory after members of his cabinet. There was Barry County for Postmaster General William Barry, Calhoun County for Vice President John C. Calhoun, Eaton County for Secretary of War John Eaton, and even Jackson County, after Bloody Bloody himself. In total, Michigan created 10 of these so-called cabinet counties. To little effect. But let's spend a little more time on the cabinet counties because they make for an interesting transition into the next phase of the Toledo War. John Eaton the Secretary of War for whom Eaton County was named, was the youngest senator in American history, being elected in 1818 at just 28 years old. Two years short of the constitutional limit, but record-keeping was pretty poor then. He'd been a major in the Tennessee militia, serving directly under Andrew Jackson in the War of 1812, and helping to write an 1817 biography of that fucking asshole. If that wasn't enough... He helped get Jackson on the ticket and elected to the Tennessee Senate in 1822 and then worked on his presidential campaign. So when Jackson became president in 1829, he brought Eaton along with him as Secretary of War. And Eaton, naturally, brought his wife, Peggy O'Neill Timberlake Eaton. And if you'd believe it, that was a critical factor in the Toledo War. See, both John and Peggy had been married before. John's first wife, Mira Lewis, was Andrew Jackson's ward. Are you getting the impression that maybe John Eaton liked Andrew Jackson a little bit? Mira and John were married in 1813, but she died two years later, leaving John a widower until 1829, when he married Peggy. Peggy, which was short for Margaret, the 19th century makes no sense, was the daughter of a tavern keeper in Washington, D.C. And that seemingly trivial fact is also going to be important in just a minute. She married John B. Timberlake in 1816, when she was just 17 years old. Timberlake was probably not a great match for Peggy. He was a drunk and 22 years her senior. He'd served as a purser on a U.S. Navy ship in charge of the ship's money. In that role, he had taken on substantial personal debt. Altogether, not a great 
catch for Peggy, and it seems likely that her father made the marriage happen in order to prevent her from eloping with an even worse man who she'd met at the tavern. In 1818, John and Peggy Timberlake became friends with John Eaton. The somewhat newlywed couple were living in a house provided by Peggy's dad across the street from his tavern, and Eaton, new to D.C., boarded above the bar. They became so close that Eaton introduced legislation into the U.S. Senate to have the government pay off Timberlake's debts personally, but it didn't pass. Eventually, Eaton paid them off himself and hooked Timberlake up with a cushy post aboard the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, in the Mediterranean Sea. In 1828, Timberlake died aboard ship. We'll get back to just how in a minute, too. That left Peggy a widow, raising two daughters by herself. Eaton, not being able to make a single fucking decision in his entire life that didn't revolve around Andrew Jackson, asked him if he should marry her. And Jackson replied, If you love the woman and she will have you, marry her by all means. So Eaton asked, Peggy answered, and the two were married just nine months after Timberlake's death. Shortly after the wedding, Jackson was sworn in and named Eaton Secretary of War. All right, now we're to the problem. See, Floride Calhoun, that's her name, Floride Calhoun, wife of Vice President and fellow Cabinet County namey John C. Calhoun, didn't like John and Peggy Eaton. It was untoward that they had married without Peggy taking a longer period of mourning. There were rumors that their relationship had begun long before her husband's death and that Eaton had gotten Timberlake his Mediterranean post so that he could have Peggy all to himself back in Washington. There were stories going around about Peggy growing up in that tavern around all those drunken men. There was even a nasty whisper campaign which said that Peggy had miscarried while Timberlake was too long away and that when he received the news and realized she had been unfaithful, he had killed himself aboard Old Ironsides. That last one is definitely untrue. Timberlake died from pneumonia, not suicide. As for the rest, well, it is hard to say. Peggy had definitely had at least two relationships before Timberlake, the army officer her father stopped her from eloping with was the second army officer he had stopped her from eloping with. And when she was older, she wrote in her autobiography, while I was still in pantalets and rolling hoops with other girls, I had the attentions of men, young and old, enough to turn a girl's head. And like, you know, good for her, except of course that this was the early 1800s and a lot of the men whose attentions she had were prominent Washington politicians whose wives didn't care much at all for her tending to them at the bar. Before Timberlake's death, Peggy had continued working at the tavern during at least part of their marriage, which continued to put her in jealous contact with all sorts of powerful men probably including future Vice President John C. Calhoun, if we want to be frank about it. Every man in this story is named John, and it is very annoying to me. So, Floride probably didn't like Peggy well before her controversial remarriage. But as to the charge that Eaton and Peggy had begun their relationship while Timberlake was still alive, and that Eaton had brushed him off to the Mediterranean in order to freely canoodle with her, well, it seems... Yeah, at least very possible. Anyway, the net effect of this indeterminable cocktail of rumor, impropriety, and innuendo was that Floride snubbed Peggy. And with her, so too did the rest of the cabinet wives. 
They refused to attend any event or social gathering at which Peggy would be present, didn't invite her to any parties at their own houses, and encouraged their husbands to snub her likewise. This absolutely incensed Andrew Jackson. In the run-up to his election, his rival John Quincy Adams had specifically made Jackson's wife, Rachel Donaldson Robards Jackson, a campaign issue. Rachel had been unhappily married to a jealous and mean-spirited captain named Louis Robards, from whom she had been separated in 1790 and returned home to Nashville, where she met and fell in love with Jackson. They married soon after. Louis had filed for divorce before the wedding, but in 1793, the couple learned that the divorce had never been finalized. Robards won a divorce the next year on the grounds that Rachel was a bigamist. John Quincy Adams used this hubbub as an example of why Jackson couldn't be trusted as president. The Adams campaign cast Andrew and Rachel as hot-headed, immoral slaves of passion. One newspaper insinuated that Rachel's technical adultery was contagious, writing, There is a pollution in the touch. There is perdition in the example of a profligate woman. Another wrote, Ought a convicted adulteress and her paramour husband be placed in the highest offices of this free and Christian land? It was all too much for Rachel. She dipped into a dark depression and fled Nashville in shame. In December, she suffered a heart attack and died, just after Jackson won the election, but before his inauguration. She was buried in the dress and shoes she had purchased for the inaugural ball in Nashville, under an epitaph written by her husband. A being so gentle and so virtuous, slander might wound, but could not dishonor. Even death, when he tore her from the arms of her husband, could not but transport her to the bosom of her God. If you hadn't caught on, Jackson blamed his political rivals for her death. In the speech he gave at her funeral, he said, May God Almighty forgive her murderers. I never can. Just a few months later, Jackson was embroiled in a scandal over the marriage of his best friend, John Eaton, and the good woman he had advised him to marry, Margaret Peggy O'Neill Eaton. And he didn't like it one bit. In a moment that's typical of the complicated feelings one should have around Andrew Jackson, he yelled, I did not come here to make a cabinet for the ladies of this place. The whole Jackson administration ground to a halt as it spent its first two years fighting over Peggy Eaton in what has come to be called the Petticoat Affair. This debacle, which was at its essence about fluoride Calhoun refusing to have Peggy Eaton over for dinner, had incredible ramifications. At its end, all of Jackson's cabinet either resigned or were fired over it, with the exception of Postmaster General William T. Berry, namesake of Berry County, Michigan. Vice President Calhoun resigned and became a senator for South Carolina, where he spent the rest of his career as the most vociferous advocate for slavery, perhaps in the grand and terrible history of America, and did his level best to lay the ground for the Civil War. The Secretary of State had been a widower and was the only person in the cabinet to loudly defend the Eatons. Through this, he earned the trust of Jackson and became his next vice president. His name was Martin Van Buren, and he followed Jackson to become the eighth president of the United States, all because of the Petticoat Affair. 
But the reason the petticoat affair is pertinent to our topic today is because John Eaton, being the source of the controversy, also resigned from Jackson's cabinet, which meant Jackson needed a new Secretary of War, for whom the last of the cabinet counties was named, Lewis Cass, the appointed governor of Michigan Territory. We're almost to the hero of this story. Well, only if you're on Michigan's side, but it's really hard not to be on Michigan's side. I'm sorry, Ohio. Ohio. Ohio, I said I'm sorry. Come on, don't be that way. Hey. Hey, it's all right. Do you want to do the thing? Huh? Would that make you feel better? You want to do the thing? Come on, let's do it. O-H. I can't hear you. I said, O-H. That's the spirit. What an impenetrable 20 seconds that must have been for everyone outside of Ohio. Back to it. Eaton was out and Lewis Cass was in. That left Territorial Secretary John Mason in charge of Michigan. But there was a problem with that. John Mason was an idiot. Almost everything he tried to do, in business or in government, was a failure. And his term as secretary was marked by him naively falling for a series of schemes and cons. The only thing keeping John Mason from accidentally drowning in his foot bath was his son, Stevens T. Mason, a 19-year-old wunderkind. Cass had observed that Stevens was the Roger Rabbit to John's baby Herman, and when he accepted the position as Secretary of War, he suggested that President Jackson find a way to get the dad out of the way and leave Michigan to the son. So, Jackson sent John Mason to Mexico on a land-buying mission, which would eventually contribute to the Texas Revolution, and Stevens T. Mason became acting governor of Michigan Territory in 1831. Stevens T. Mason was shrewd, smart, and forceful. But he was also 19 years old. Quickly, it became clear that the boy governor was himself ungovernable. He wanted two things most of all and wouldn't stop until he got them. One, statehood. Two, the Toledo Strip. Now, technically speaking, Stevens T. Mason was only acting governor for a short while. Jackson filled the vacant role of official governor with George Bryan Porter in August of 1831. But he didn't get to Michigan for a full year afterwards, and even then he didn't stay long. He doesn't seem to have liked Michigan and made it his business to stay away as often as possible. Smart move, considering that in 1834 he visited Detroit and contracted cholera there and died. So, Stevens T. Mason, who had been doing the job for most of the time anyway, was once again acting governor in name. It was Mason who really kicked building townships and roads along the Strip into high gear, and Mason who submitted the first proposal for statehood, which Ohio got thrown out. In response, he organized a census, which showed that there were 85,856 people, you know what I mean, in Michigan, who were being denied the rights and benefits of full citizenship. But it was 1835. The next year, Andrew Jackson would be up for re-election, and he needed Ohio to win. So he threw in against Mason, who he had appointed. Stevens T. Mason decided to hold a constitutional convention anyway, even though the power to do that was vested in Congress, and asked his Ohio counterpart, Governor Robert Lucas, to negotiate an end to the dispute with him. Lucas responded by saying, basically, sit down, little boy. The matter was between Ohio and the federal government, since Michigan was not a state and he would have nothing more to say to him about it. 
This flash boiled Mason's already hot blood. On February 12, 1835, Michigan passed the Pains and Penalties Act, which made it a criminal offense for anyone to do Ohio government business of any kind, holding court, collecting taxes, voting, on disputed territory. The penalty was a fee of up to $1,000 or five years hard labor. Eleven days later, Ohio extended their existing county lines up through the Strip and created a new one for the area around Toledo itself. Instead of naming it for Jackson's cabinet, they called it Lucas County, after the governor himself. Finally, finally, after 80 years in its chrysalis, the Mitchell Map Error Caterpillar was ready to emerge as the beautiful but deadly Toledo War Butterfly. What? Not deadly? Nobody died in this thing? Then why are we even... Stabbing? Well, how many? One stabbing? Ugh. Fine. As the beautiful, but threatening, Toledo War Butterfly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Are you wondering how to get the most out of your social media experience? Well, could you pretend like you are for a minute and listen to me while I tell you about Follow Friday, a podcast about who you should follow online? Every week, Eric Johnson talks with creative people about who they follow. That includes writers, comedians, YouTubers, and even that sorriest sort of all, podcasters. Eric interviewed me back on the July 2nd episode of the show. We talked about my love-hate relationship with Alka May Adwell Glay, 
Why I Want to Be Friends with Justin McElroy, my favorite account on Twitter, and The Art of Video Game Design. He also made me talk about fucking Aristotle, because Eric listens to this show. And therefore, via the transitive property, you should listen to his. I know that's not how the transitive property works, but maybe it should be. When you listen to Follow Friday, you'll have a good time, you'll learn more about creators like me, but mostly ones who are better than me, and most importantly, you'll discover some fascinating people who you should be following online. The name of the show again is Follow Friday. Get it at followfridaypodcast.com or just search for Follow Friday in your podcast app. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. On or around March 31st, both Ohio and Michigan called up their militias. As is so often the case, records conflict on which side moved first. My best guess would be that Michigan instigated things, since they were the ones who made camp in Toledo, while Ohio's army settled down in Perrysburg, 10 miles southwest of Toledo and outside of the disputed zone. Troop numbers are also pretty hazy. But Michigan definitely had the bigger deployment, with somewhere around 1,000 men, maybe as many as 1,200, to Ohio's roughly 600. But that's not to say Ohio was without advantage. Since they were actually a state, they also had a large reserve force, which could be called up at any time. Ohio was better financed, too, which will be a very important thing to remember later. The seriousness of the battle lines is really hard to work out. On the one hand, The size of both armies was intimidating, but the degree to which they were actually composed of soldiers as opposed to layabout civilians lured by the promise of easy drink and a good fistfight or two? Eh, who knows? The commanders of the armies do a good job illustrating this confusion. The Michigan Army was led by General Joseph W. Brown, while Ohio had Major General John Bell. Sounds impressive, right? But neither Brown nor Bell were actual military men. Well, Brown had fought a few years back in the Black Hawk War, but he wasn't a formal officer. He ran a stagecoach line between Chicago and Detroit with an out-of-the-way stop-off in Tecumseh, Michigan, which Brown had founded and where he owned an inn that his passengers were obliged to buy a night's stay at. The title bestowed upon him by Stevens Mason for the Toledo War was special agent of the territory to watch the Ohio situation, and ain't that a mouthful. Major General John Bell was even less qualified for battle. 
He was the mayor of Lower Sandusky, Ohio, before being suddenly and inexplicably named Major General in 1834. He seems to have dropped out as soon as the war was over and lived the rest of his life as a low-level politician and civil servant, a probate judge, state rep. He became a congressman in 1851, filling a vacancy left by the death of Amos Woods, but he only held that job for two months. Even if the generals were unprepared and the armies were mostly drunken roughnecks, the state of affairs was still alarming, and President Jackson was being pulled into the fray. His rival, John Quincy Adams, who made Rachel's sluttiness a primary campaign issue, you'll remember, publicly sided with Michigan, saying, Never in the course of my life have I known a controversy of which all the right was so clearly on one side and all the power so overwhelmingly on the other. Jackson's hatred for Adams wasn't the only reason he had to side with Ohio. There was still that re-election to consider, and on top of that, Governor Lucas was a fellow Democrat. In light of the standing armies around Toledo, Jackson asked his new attorney general, Benjamin Butler, for his legal opinion on the matter. Unfortunately for Jackson, Butler concluded that Michigan was in the right. Andrew Jackson was now working against two clocks. If he couldn't get the Toledo conflict taken care of quickly, not only could there be civil war, but Ohio might also lose land and vote against his re-election. He quickly dispatched a small team to broker a deal. The terms were like this. Congress would promise to take up the issue and definitively settle the border in the next session. Until then, residents living in the Strip could hold elections and choose to be a part of whatever they wanted, Michigan Territory or Ohio State. And, finally... Ohio would be allowed to resurvey the Harris Line for the third time. Governor Lucas agreed to the conditions. Boy Governor Mason did not. But somehow, and this is truly baffling, neither of them knew what the other had decided. The two governors refused to meet face to face, so Jackson's arbiters had to negotiate with each of them individually. Apparently, they neglected to tell Lucas that the deal was off? Probably because they wanted the matter settled for Ohio so that the state would vote for Jackson again. So Lucas walked away believing the deal was on. He gave orders to Major General Bell to disband his soldiers, he called for Ohio elections to be held in the Strip, and he started organizing a new survey team to remark his favored borderline. Meanwhile, Stevens T. Mason kept ramping up for war, and he was about to have cause to begin it. On April 6th, Ohio held the first election in the disputed strip. Two days later, the sheriff of Monroe County, Michigan, showed up at the door of Benjamin Franklin Stickney to arrest those who had voted under the Pain and Penalties Act. Benjamin Franklin Stickney is one of the uh, larger, larger-than-life characters in this story. His mother was the favorite niece of our BFFBF, best friend forever Ben Franklin, for whom he was named. He was born in New Hampshire in 1773, and from there his early life is a mystery. Uh, he was extremely intelligent, eloquent, and well-read, but whether he studied formally or was something of an autodidact, I can't say. He may have spent his early adulthood farming or else running around in Washington, D.C. high society. Again, I don't know. He definitely did marry Mary Stark, daughter of Major General John Stark, who unlike John Bell, was an actual major general and war hero, having commanded the New Hampshire militia at Bunker Hill, Trenton, Princeton, and the Battle of Bennington during the American Revolution. He's also the guy that gave New Hampshire its state motto, live free or die, which is always a really intense thing to see on a fucking license plate, but you know, whatever. 
With his father-in-law's influence, Stickney became Justice of the Peace and Postmaster for Pembroke, New Hampshire at the age of 31, and stayed there for a while writing the definitive biography of Stark in his free time. He left Pembroke in 1811, going on a secret solo scouting mission to Canada in order to determine whether the U.S. would be able to defeat Great Britain if there were a war. Stickney told Secretary of War William Eustace that they would not, and Eustace agreed, but 1812 was too good a year to not have a war in, so America did it anyway and lost. But Stickney's efforts didn't go unnoticed. He was named Indian agent for Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he served during said War of 1812. He wrote a history of the Ottawa people, he spoke 20 tribal languages, he... Ugh, he did a lot of stuff. But the two things I want to emphasize are his children and his canal. First, his children. Stickney got a reputation as a weirdo, earned by several things, including his kids. He wanted to call his daughters after U.S. states, but Mary objected. He got his way with the third daughter, who was named Indiana Stickney. His sons were what really turned heads, though. He named his firstborn One. And following that, Mary gave birth to a second boy, who they named, naturally, Two. The story goes that B.F. Stickney thought the boys should be allowed to take whatever names they wanted when they grew up, and suggested they be called one and two in the meantime, but they didn't come up with anything else when they got older, and so one and two they remained all their lives. Then there's the canal. When Stickney was in Indiana, he discovered a way to easily build a waterway from Lake Erie to the Mississippi. This became the Miami and Erie Canal, which would start at Toledo and travel down to Cincinnati. The Stickney family moved to the Maumee Valley in 1820. Since Stickney was one of the few white men who could speak or bothered to speak to the indigenous tribes in the area, he still kept work as sort of a liaison with the Ottawa. But he also started purchasing real estate and, most especially, working on the canal. He was the first person to realize that this canal would have to go through Toledo. At first, he thought it would be better if that canal and his property were in Michigan, since it wasn't a state and therefore he wouldn't have to pay property taxes on it. So, he helped convince the people of the town to secede from Ohio and throw in with Michigan back in the early 1820s. But, the authority to build the canal only existed in Ohio, so officials told Stickney that if Toledo wasn't a part of the state, the canal wouldn't go there, and so Stickney's property would go untaxed, sure, but also worthless. Stickney did an abrupt about-face. He went back to the people he had convinced to turn to Michigan and told them, never mind, actually, let's say Ohio after all. Some documents suggest it was his idea to incorporate the area around Toledo as Lucas County, and his suggestion that the April 6th election be held. Some sources suggest that this whole thing is Stickney's fault. Certainly he advocated for Ohio in those elections, and so in came the Michigan militia to arrest any Ohio-supporting citizens of Toledo. They first came for Dr. Naaman Goodsell and George McKay, who they found hiding on Stickney's property and arrested. In the skirmish, one of the militia members tried to gouge out McKay's eye, and two or three others throttled Indiana Stickney when she sounded the alarm. They returned time and again over the next few weeks to harass and arrest Ohio sympathizers. 300 Michigan militia members seized the town and announced themselves by tying an Ohio state flag to the tail of a horse and smacking it, sending it galloping through the muddy streets. Every Ohioan who'd been elected in the April 6th election fled the city for Perrysburg, afraid for their lives. 
in the meantime, Governor Lucas, thinking that Stevens T. Mason had agreed to President Jackson's deal, assembled a new surveying team and sent them off to the north end of the Strip to explore the Harris Line. They started at that post on the south end of Lake Michigan and headed northeast along the diagonal through Indiana. They crossed into the Strip without incident and made it just over halfway through. Then they reached Phillips Corners, where it all went wrong. A prison warden and sheriff's deputy from Tecumseh named Colonel, probably not actually a colonel, Colonel William McNair, hearing about the survey team, had assembled a posse of militia to arrest them or run them off. General Joseph Brown came along. On April 26th, they tracked the surveying party to a pair of cabins at Phillips Corners. And, well, what happened next is, I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear, disputed. According to the survey team, McNair, Brown, and crew descended on them in a hail of gunfire. According to the Michiganders, I've come around to Michiganders for a reason I'll save for the very end of the episode. According to the Michiganders, they calmly instructed the survey team to leave the area or be arrested. And the gunfire only followed when the Ohioans reached for their weapons first. What isn't clear from either account is whether Michigan fired at the surveyors or fired into the air as a warning. One way or the other, no one was hurt. Most of the team fled south into Ohio, but some number, maybe nine, maybe twelve, stuck around to fight and were quickly captured. McNair and Brown escorted their new prisoners north to Adrian, Michigan, where it seems they began to realize maybe they'd gone too far. They decided to let the POWs go, but then, at the last minute, they changed course. Someone suggested that they keep one of the men, an engineer named Colonel Jonathan E. Fletcher, to, quote, test the validity of the arrest. Fletcher was taken to McNair's jail cell in Tecumseh, where he was held, loosely, for the next few months. A resident of Tecumseh and member of the militia named Benjamin Baxter described him as a genial gentleman, not suffering apparently from his term of incarceration, but sometimes subjecting us to the inconvenience of hunting him up when we had occasion to use the jail for some counterfeiter or horse thief, as he was likely to be found out riding with one of the sheriff's lovely daughters, having taken the jail keys with him. (laughs) Ah, the past is stupid. But the imprisonment wasn't the main issue. The survey team, once they were released from jail, immediately wrote to Governor Lucas to say that a group of Michiganders had shot at them, and word of that act of violence soon spread across Ohio and inflamed public opinion. McNair and several other witnesses, including one of the surveyors, swore up and down that their guns had been aimed at the sky and that they had only fired in warning. It could have been true. It might have been true. But Governor Lucas was sick of it. He called a special session of the state legislature, which passed a suite of bills to combat Michigan. The first law made the forcible abduction of citizens of Ohio a crime punishable by seven years of hard labor, which seems pretty reasonable, really, but the others were more provocative. Remember Lucas County, named for the governor and overlapping Toledo? Well, the legislature moved the county seat to Toledo, and directed the State Court of Common Pleas to hold session there and appoint county officials on September 7th, 1835. And then they appropriated $300,000 to support the state militia in taking care of the dispute. The 10,000 reservists were called up. 
With an overwhelming fighting force forming up around the border, Lucas made another offer for peace. Stop arresting Ohioans, let the surveyors run the Harris Line, and Ohio wouldn't make any further advance into the Strip. Until the federal government settled things, they could both govern Toledo. Boy Governor Stevens T. Mason was like, psh, no way. The whole point of this quagmire was that Congress had given authority of Toledo to Michigan territory in no uncertain terms. To let Ohio in was to weaken their rightful claim. He told Lucas approximately where he could stick his peace offer. On July 12th, fighting broke out along the southern border of the Strip. No one was killed or seriously hurt, but one of the Ohio loyalists was charged with forcibly resisting arrest, and a warrant was issued. His name was Two Stickney. On July 15th, Monroe County Michigan Deputy Sheriff Joseph Wood and Constable Lyman Hurd crossed into Toledo and found Two, along with the almost eye-gouged George McKay, drinking at J. Baron Davis's tavern. Two had publicly warned Wood that if he came to arrest him, his life would be in danger. But that only made it all the more imperative that Wood execute the warrant. After all, Toledo was a part of Michigan, and you couldn't flout the law in Michigan. I wish that there was a detailed and dramatic account of what followed because it seems like it was a proper Old West bar brawl, but all we know for sure is that while attempting to effect the arrest, Deputy Wood was stabbed by two Stickney, who then ran off towards the South, where men were men and Ohio was Ohio. This time it was Governor Mason's turn to be outraged. He demanded that Governor Lucas extradite two Stickney to Michigan to face trial for attempted homicide. Lucas replied that he couldn't do that because as far as he was concerned, the stabbing had occurred in Ohio. Two days later, the Monroe County Sheriff turned up again at the Stickney estate with a few dozen men. Two wasn't there, but George McKay was, and so was Major Benjamin Franklin Stickney. The sheriff announced they were both under arrest, but Stickney refused to comply, and the militia had to hogtie him and strap him over the back of a horse to get him to Monroe County Jail. Then the posse rode over to the offices of the Toledo Gazette and destroyed their printing press. There had been some progress between Andrew Jackson and Stevens Mason at brokering a compromise, but that all went away with Lucas's refusal to hand over to Stickney. Mason vowed to resist and told the territorial legislature that Michigan could not accept any treaty that gave even a morsel of Ohioan presence in Toledo, especially since there was now a force of 10,000 or more Ohioans waiting just on the other side of the line, brought in for the express purpose of, quote, murdering our citizens. Michigan formed their Constitutional Congress and drafted a state constitution, in spite of a lack of approval from either President Jackson or Congress. They marked the boundary as they believed right, and on August 24th, nominated Mason to be governor. Not acting governor or territorial governor, governor governor. The next day, Mason called up the whole territorial militia to his command at Toledo. Four days after that, on August 29th, Andrew Jackson stepped in and removed Stevens T. Mason from office. Technically. The thing is, the people of Michigan really liked their boy governor. Some of them had thought he was going too far with this whole Toledo war business, sure. But then that guy, was his name really two, had stabbed a sheriff's deputy and Ohio had let him get away with it. 
That proved to the skeptical that they'd been wrong and Mason had been right. They needed to fight, and they needed Mason to lead them. Jackson appointed John Scott Horner, or Little Jack, as the new territorial governor of Michigan, but the people refused to follow him. Anytime he left the capital, they pelted him with fruit, and anytime he stayed in, they burned effigies on the lawn. For the next year, there were effectively two governors in Michigan. And then it was September. The law passed in Ohio's special session mandated that the Lucas County government convene on September 7th in Toledo, and everybody knew it. Mason, now technically out of power, was able to raise a force of just 250, most of whom were armed only with broomsticks. They put down camp at a farmhouse eight miles south of Toledo on the night of the 6th and prepared to meet Lucas's force in the morning. That force was led by Colonel Matthias von Fleet. Colonel von Fleet was, ready, not a colonel. He was a farmer and a civil servant, not at all interested in clashing with the Michigan army, even if they were mostly carrying sticks. He ordered his hundred troops, along with the three Lucas County judges and other officials, to sneak into Toledo at one in the morning while Mason's men were still asleep. They ducked into a schoolhouse and, over the next two hours, quietly brought the court to session appointed a sheriff, three commissioners, and a county clerk, Dr. Horatio Conant. After approving the official minutes, which were written on scrap paper and plopped inside Dr. Conant's hat for safekeeping, the meeting was adjourned and everybody headed off to a tavern to celebrate. This was a mistake. Michigan's militia was soon awoken to the news that the Buckeyes had held their meeting and were partying down the road. They got their stuff together and started marching to the tavern. The drunken judges, sheriff, commissioners, and Dr. Conant heard their approach just in time. They dropped their glasses mid-gulp and fled out the back door, running through the dark all the way back out of the strip. It was only when they were safe in uncontested Ohio that Dr. Conant realized he had lost his hat. Or maybe it was only when they were safe in uncontested Ohio that he realized the minutes were in his hat and that without them, they had no proof that they'd held court. Whichever way, a small team had to be dispatched to stealthily retrace their steps and find it, narrowly avoiding discovery. Michigan retaliated by raiding Ben Stickney's property again, killing some hogs and chickens in the process. But after that, both sides began to step down. Governor Horner was unpopular in Michigan, but he was quite popular with Governor Lucas, and the two agreed to disband their militias and return all prisoners, including Colonel Fletcher, who was finally freed from the living hell of horseback riding with the sheriff's daughters. The next month, the voters of Michigan kicked Horner out and officially reinstated Stevens Mason. They also elected two senators and a house rep, but Congress refused to seat them because they were working under that unofficial state constitution. Mason again raised the militia, but it basically just sat there in Toledo doing nothing and costing a lot. A whole lot, actually. Almost a year later, on June 15, 1836, with his re-election secured, President Jackson signed a bill to allow Michigan's entry as a state. They would have to agree to give up the Toledo Strip, but in exchange the feds were willing to give Michigan the Upper Peninsula. Wait a second, said Wisconsin. Shut up, Wisconsin, said everyone. But Michigan was skeptical. Who wanted the Upper Peninsula? 
It was useless, crappy, snow-blocked tundra. The Youpers didn't care for southern Michigan either, which hasn't changed a bit in the ensuing two centuries. In a special convention, the Michigan legislature refused the deal. In the end, it was the expense of the militia that ended the war and brought Michigan officially into the Union. Not long after the offer was rejected, the U.S. Treasury announced that it was sitting on a large cash surplus, which it planned to distribute to the 25 states. The states, not the territories. Michigan was out of money, mostly because they were spending it on a standing army that was sitting around Toledo harassing people. They needed that cash. There was a second convention in Ann Arbor on December 14th. Well, sort of. It wasn't technically a convention because it wasn't actually called by either Governor Mason or the legislature. It was sort of a 19th century flash mob of public meetings and agreements. The Whig Party said the whole thing was illegal and boycotted it. The few legislators who did show up voted overwhelmingly to accept the terms of Jackson's deal. Congress wasn't sure if any of this was official or legal, it probably wasn't either, but they accepted the results anyway because they wanted this whole fucking thing done with already. And that is how Michigan became a state, without the Toledo Strip, but with the Upper Peninsula. The citizens of Michigan were pissed off. They thought it was a raw deal. Toledo was set to be the most economically prosperous city in the United States, while the Upper Peninsula was a drag, a drain, useless. Ohio agreed. They had solidly won the Toledo War. Until Michigan figured out that the Upper Peninsula was stuffed with iron and copper. At roughly the same time, work began on the Illinois-Michigan Canal, cementing Chicago as the hub of the country and relegating Toledo, which was predicted to become the New York-New York of the Midwest, to instead become the Toledo-Ohio of the Midwest. Sorry, Toledo. Sorry, Ohio. One last time. O-H. You can do better than that. O-H. God, you people are easy. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. The website is constantpodcast.com. Twitter is at Constant Podcast. Instagram is at The Constant Podcast. And Facebook is a blight on Western civilization. Thank you, everyone, who supports the making of this show. If you'd like that to include you, go to patreon.com slash theconstant to sign up and get access to the secret feed where bonus episodes live and die. But mostly live. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to the world's first podcast. It actually is. I feel like that sounds like I'm being lippy, but it truly is the world's first podcast. Open Source, a show about arts, ideas, and politics. This week, Christopher Lydon talks with Daphne Brooks about the feminist sound in music from black artists. Listen at RadioOpenSource.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, land of Lincoln, who popularized the term Michigander as a pejorative reference to territorial governor and secretary of war, Lewis Cass, who ran for president on the platform that new states should be allowed to choose whether to be slaveholding or free, and in response, Lincoln called him a Michigander, like he was a goose. This has been a very long tag, and this has also been The Constant. Sick burn, Abe. Tell me where you want to go. Oh, baby, I don't want
Asanasipia. Asanasipia, Chironesis, Illinois, Metropotania, Michigania, Pilisipia, Polypop. Hmm. Polypotamia, 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 Saratoga, Sylvania, and Washington. That can't be how we end things, but it is the end of the script currently. <laughs>